0: This is the fourth and final week of our series, What's Next? And up until this point, we've been talking about what happens after we die. And we've learned, according to the Bible, and that's big to us in this series, according to the Bible, after we die, we're going to spend eternity in one of two places. We're either going to spend eternity in a place called heaven, or we're going to spend eternity in a place called hell. We found out that hell was an awful place. And so last week, we talked about the fact that if hell is so awful, how could a loving God actually send someone to hell? And uh, if you weren't here last week, it's too much to review, but I would really encourage you to go online, listen to that. I think it's a lot that we need to understand about the character of who God is. This week, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about what happens when Jesus returns to this earth. And uh, I would just tell you now, I have never... Prepared harder for a message in my life, but yet I've never felt so unprepared. But we're going to talk about it this weekend. It may surprise you to know that there's more said about the return of Jesus to this earth than there is said about any other event in the Bible. For example, there's more said about Jesus' return than is said about creation, there's more said about his return than is said about the fall of mankind. Uh, There's there's more said about the return of Jesus than the original uh, coming to this earth when Jesus appeared in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. There's more said about the return of Jesus than his death on the cross. In fact, there are over 300 references in the New Testament to the return of Jesus. But even with all of that information, for the most part, there's a lot of confusion out there. Mark Twain wrote this, The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but that they know so many things that ain't so. And so it's not that we know too little about Jesus' return. We just know so many things that ain't so. We just know so much stuff that's not really biblical. And uh, for that reason, I want to begin this morning by having you see what Jesus had to say about his return, his second coming to this earth. By the way, I'm not going to tell you who I'm pulling for today, but if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 24.3. And if you don't get that, then you're not really a football fan. Matthew 24 beginning in verse three. I actually didn't have a Peyton Manning jersey, so I just decided to be classy and represent Peyton Manning. But anyway, that's a whole other story another time. <clears throat> Matthew, calm down, people, we're in church. You can't start drinking till afterwards, okay? Matthew 24, verse three, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. And I think what Jesus was saying there, guys, don't get sidetracked. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that that, that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, happen but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And just so you know, pretty much every generation has had these signs. Pretty much every generation has experienced these things. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, disease, famine. And Jesus says, even though you may hear about those things, in fact, even though you may experience those things, that's not the end. It continues in verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then I want you to notice this next statement that Jesus makes. And the gospel of the kingdom. Now we learned about the gospel last week. What is it? That Jesus left heaven, he came to this earth, He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God. Three days later, he rose from the dead to verify and validate that he was indeed the son of God, the one who was capable, the one who had the ability to take away the sin of the world. And if we accept that by faith that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, we get restored into a relationship with God. That is the gospel. And so Jesus says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be... preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now notice this phrase, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. Verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Jesus says, I don't even know, but only the father. So Jesus says that the end is not going to come until the gospel has been preached to the whole world, which brings up a question. Could we actually speed up the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Let me show you an interesting verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be a surprise. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. I've told you before, eventually this earth is going to be destroyed Jesus is going to create it the way it was originally. And we're going to spend all eternity right here on earth, heaven on earth. So Peter talks about that. Then he says this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? Now here's our key word and hastening the coming of the day of God. This Greek word for hastening is the Greek or spudo not to be confused with Speedo, okay? Men wearing Speedos will not hasten the return of Jesus, although men wearing Speedos may be a sign of the apocalypse. You know what I'm saying? But we get our English word from speed, from this Greek word, spudo. It means to cause something to happen soon, to hurry something up. Literally, this verse could read, looking for and hurrying up, speeding up the coming of the day of God. How do we hurry up? How do we speed up the return of Jesus Christ to this earth? We make sure that the gospel is preached to the entire world. We keep the main thing, the main thing. By the way, just so you know, there are about 6,500 people groups on the planet, groups of people that have their own language. Uh, Now there's about 1,800 people groups left that do not have the gospel. They have no written scripture. And of course, these are the hardcore to get to, right? And that's why they haven't received the scripture yet. And so I've been talking with an organization to make that a reality. What happens is a linguist has to go live among those people find out what their language is, help them develop an alphabet, learn to record their language, and then take the Bible and translate it into their language. It takes about two years at a cost of about $200,000. And I got to thinking, how cool would it be for us as a church at Christmas to raise money, two, three, five, six, a million dollars, and identify people groups that have never heard the gospel, never seen the written word of God, and make sure that they have available to them. When we do things like that, we actually speed up the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. But we have to keep the main thing, the main thing. We can't get sidetracked. Don't worry about when is it going to happen. I don't think that we need to sit around and talk about how is it going to happen. Just stay busy. Jesus says, my gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. By the way, one of the reasons I say so little about the second coming and the end of time is because I think it gets us sidetracked from focusing on the main thing. And the main thing is spreading the gospel to make sure everybody hears the gospel. I've always felt it was interesting. You know, we have small groups that will spend a year, two years studying the Book of Revelation. That's good. It actually says if you're you're blessed if you study it. But I wonder, as you're studying the Book of Revelation, how many people who are actually involved in that two-year study would even walk across the street to share the gospel with someone who has never been exposed to the gospel? And if they were to die, they would spend all eternity in a place called hell. We've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. But we like to study. We like to discuss. We like to speculate. And we forget about the main thing and the main thing is spreading the life-changing message of Jesus Christ but unfortunately we get sidetracked I mean when I was in seminary guys would sit around and talk about the second coming we'd have conversations like hey who do you think the antichrist is well this was the early 80s everybody thought it was Henry Kissinger okay if you were around you may remember that right are are, are you on millennial or are you post-millennial are you pre-trib mid-trib post-trib and this is a reference to the rapture The rapture is the idea that Jesus is gonna come not to the earth, but just come in the clouds. He's gonna call out all the Christians and all hell is gonna break loose on this earth. And some point during the tribulation, Jesus is gonna return to this earth and that would actually be the second coming. By the way, this is probably gonna irritate some of you. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that there is a rapture. In fact, this whole teaching of the rapture uh, and then, that, then, then a time of tribulation, and then the second coming to this earth. It's, it's relatively a new teaching in church history. And I know what some of you are thinking. It's not new. I've heard it all my life. Well, you may be old, but you're not as old as church history. See, church history is about 2,000 years, years old. And it's interesting, the word rapture never appears in the Bible, not even really the concept of the rapture. It comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Thessalonians were concerned because they had been told Jesus was going to return, but he hadn't shown up yet. Now they've got relatives who are dying, and they're like, Paul, what's going to happen? So Paul talks a little bit about what it will, that the dead in Christ will rise, and a lot of people have made that into the rapture. In fact, this actually didn't even show up to about 150 years ago when somebody wrote an article espousing the idea of the rapture, it then made its way into the footnotes of a very, very popular study Bible that there was gonna be two comings, that there was gonna be a rapture, and then there was gonna be a second coming, and now it's just kind of accepted as fact. I'm not sure there really is one, and some, some of you right now are actually sending me an email. Don't bother, Patty has been instructed, any email that comes in, that even has the word rapture just deleted, okay? Instead of writing me an email, why don't you think of someone who needs to hear the gospel and share the gospel with that person? Because understand, in the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter if there's a rapture or not. And if there is a rapture, on the way up, you can say, told you so, and you'll have all eternity to rub it in. You know, (laughs) tell me I was wrong. I actually hope you're right. I've studied the tribulation. I want no part of it. I would love nothing more than to get out before it happens. I would just say this. Be very, very careful about basing your theology on what's convenient for us. Now, having said that, let me give you my view of the end times. Jesus is coming. Any questions? That's it. Jesus is coming. Let's not worry about it. He's going to come. Our job is to keep the main thing the main thing. And since Jesus is going to return to this earth someday, this is what I want to talk about. What happens when he returns? Well, according to the Bible, every one of us, each and every one of us, we are going to stand before God and we are going to be judged. When Jesus returns, there is gonna be a believer's judgment and there is going to be an unbeliever's judgment. And at both of those judgments, regardless of the one you attend, our works, our deeds, in other words, how we lived our lives, those things are gonna come into play. Let me show you some verses. I'm going to give you a lot of verses this weekend because if you walk out angry, I would rather have you be angry at God than me because I'm more sensitive than God is, okay? So let me give you a lot of verses. And in these verses, you're going to see one word capitalized. And when we get to that word, I know it's early. Let's say that word out loud together. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring... Okay, you sound like a bunch of Presbyterians, okay? Let's, let's, let's do this like we're, you know, I don't know, holy rollers or something. Here we go. For God will bring... Everything. Deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or bad. Revelation twenty thirteen: the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. First Peter 1, 17, since you call on a father who judges Jesus. persons work impartially, impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Revelation 22, 12. Look, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am an each. You are an each. We are every. And understand, God is going to judge and reward each and every one of us based on our works, based on how we lived our lives. Now question, are we saved by our works? In other words, can we be so good? Can we do so many good things that God will be so impressed that he will welcome us back into a relationship with him? Can we be saved by our works? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul makes this very clear. In a little book he wrote to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine, he says, for it is by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, our salvation cannot be based on our works. It is based on grace. Grace, someone has said, is God's riches at Christ's expense. God so loved the world, he gave us Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that was to die for us so that we would have a penalty to pay for our sins so we could be reconciled back into a relationship with God. Grace is God, Jesus doing for us what we can't do. So how do I explain that we're not saved by our works, but we are going to be judged by our works? Well, I can answer that with two simple words belief and behavior. And we have to learn how to distinguish between our belief and our behavior. You see, our belief determines where we're going to spend eternity whether we will spend it in heaven or whether we will spend it in hell. But our behavior determines how we're going to spend eternity. Let me say that again our belief determines. Where we spend eternity, our behavior determines how we spend eternity, because in heaven, people will be rewarded for their works, but in hell, people are going to be punished for their works. But where you spend eternity is determined by whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether or not you accept his free gift of salvation. But understand, after Jesus returns to this earth, there are going to be two judgments, one is referred to in the bible as the judgment seat of christ that's for christians it's for believers the other judgment is referred to as the great white throne judgment that is for unbelievers those who have rejected god but understand these judgments aren't to determine your belief at this point your belief or maybe your lack of belief has already determined which judgment that you're going to attend But do understand that at each of these judgments, how you behave during your life will be judged. So let's talk about these two judgments. First of all, Let's talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm guessing a majority of us here on a Sunday morning at 9.30, we would fall into the category of being believers. We've accepted Jesus Christ as our savior. So this is what we have in store for us. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He's writing to Christians and he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. In other words, while we're on this earth, whether good or bad. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 what it's going to be like for us when we stand before God that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For no one, and again, he's writing to Christians, for no Christian can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are a Christian, if you've been reconciled back to God, it is because of the foundation of Jesus Christ in your life. And then he goes on to say, if anyone builds on this foundation... In other words, now he begins to talk about how we live our lives as Christians. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward, If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So this isn't determined whether you believe or not. That's already been determined. That's why you're at this judgment. But it is going to judge how you lived your life. And it's interesting, Paul points out in this passage that as Christians, we can live live our lives and we can be building with wood and hay and straw, or we can be building with gold and silver and costly stones. But he says, we're going to be judged and see how we did. And I kind of always pictured it this way. Maybe I'm in heaven and I hear over the loudspeaker, will Michael Thomas Lee of 108 Honey Ridge Lane, Holly Springs, North Carolina, please report to the throne. So I make my way to the throne and maybe I hear beep, 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 and here comes a dump truck just backing up with all my works in the back and just kind of dumps a big old pile right between me and God, right? And it says that God is gonna judge it by fire. Now I don't know if he's gonna flick his bick or call down a lightning bolt, but somehow it's, well, what's gonna happen? all the wood, the hay, the straw is going to burn up. And what I am left with, I'm going to be rewarded for. Understand while we are on this earth, we can invest our time. We can spend our time doing stuff that will last forever. Stuff that we would say has eternal value. If you give, You're giving, it has eternal value. Understand, every time you give to Hope Community Church, you're actually spreading the gospel. That's how we make it happen. You serve other people. You share your faith. You see a need, you address that need. We can do those kinds of things. And here it's described as building your life with things like gold and silver and costly songs. We will be rewarded for those things. Or as Christians, we can spend our life doing stuff that has no eternal value. In other words, it's all about us. It's all about our pleasure. Anytime we have some money, we spend it on us. Anytime we have some extra time, we invest it in ourselves, right? That is referred to here as wood, hay, and straw. It's going to be burned up. We're not going to get rewarded for that. But it's interesting. There's also a third scenario for those of us who are Christians. As a Christian, you can do stuff that has eternal value. You can do good stuff. You can do the right stuff. But because of the way you do it, maybe you have the wrong attitude Maybe you have the wrong motive. You will not be rewarded for that stuff. For example, there are a lot of Saturday night messages I will not be rewarded for because I do them with a bad attitude because I want to be home with Laura or I want to go to the block party or I want to go to the wedding. Actually, that's not true. I never want to go to a wedding. The best thing about Saturday nights is I never have to go to weddings. I mean, it's a glorious thing. But anyway... um, football games I would love to go to. So every once in a while I get in here about noon on Saturdays and I don't have the right attitude, but it's what I'm paid to do. And I do it right. I'm not going to get rewarded for any of those messages in heaven. Hopefully there'll be a couple on Sunday that, you know, got God's attention. Right. My point is this, you can do good things with the wrong motive. You won't get rewarded. For example, you may give, but what does the Bible say? God loves a cheerful giver. You may be a grumpy giver. You give, but you're not happy about it. You resent it. You won't get rewarded. You're doing the right thing, but you're doing it with the wrong motive. Or you may serve, and the only reason you serve is because "Ah, somebody's gonna make you feel guilty if you don't serve. So you serve, but you won't be rewarded for that. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter six, verse one. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. What is practicing your righteousness? That would be your acts of generosity, your good deeds in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. I am now getting ready to give to the needy. Don't do it that way. And on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That was a first century that, To Don't just keep everything a secret so that you, your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, you can do good stuff, the right stuff, but you won't get credit for it because you did it the wrong way. Over the holidays, Laura was showing me something on Facebook and there were people uh, on Facebook saying, we're just out blessing people. And they were going around the community and they were doing things for people. And then they were posting it on Facebook so everybody could see what they were doing. Jesus would go, "Eh." no reward. I mean, I hope you enjoy the accolades you got from posting it on Facebook, but you will not get rewarded for that. Right. Right. Or, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, man, I would love to get behind what the church is doing if we just had a choir and eh. Jesus say right thing, wrong motive. When I was in California, I had a guy come up to me that was, we were doing a project and he, he brought his checkbook and he was ready to write out to the church a, a check for $1 million. And I wanted him so to do this because I, I just wanted to see what it looked like, right? But this was just, he says, I will give this, this, this to the building we're building, but you gotta name it after my mom. Eh, you know, you won't get reward for it. My point is this. As Christians, we're going to stand before God. We're going to be judged how we lived our lives. Some of you are going to be encouraged. Some of you are going to be ashamed. Let me show you a verse. 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Why, as Christians, would we be ashamed when Jesus returns? I can tell you why. Why? It's because we are going to realize just how much we wasted our lives. Now, I'm going to get in your face a little bit, okay? I know the majority of you listening to me right now, you're Christians, you're believers. But you don't give, and you don't serve, and you don't share your faith. And when there's a need, you just assume somebody else will take care of it because, hey, you got things to do. I'm telling you, you're going to stand before God one day. And when you stand, I'm just giving you a heads up. You are not going to get very many rewards and you are going to be ashamed. However, there's some of you, you give sacrificially. I mean, yeah, you could have a mountain cabin and a beach house and all those tools, but but you, you understand the principle of tithing and you understand, Hey, I'm only going to be on this earth for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I'm going to spend all eternity in heaven. I think I'll prepare for heaven. And so you give sacrificially. I can't tell you how many single moms I I know around here who give sacrificially. I don't know where the money comes from. I don't know how God takes care of it, but they give. And then they serve. You know, people don't just run in and get in and get their service and then get back out the parking lot and see how fast they can get out. They're like, wow, somebody needs to take care of those two-year-olds the next service so the parents can go to church. I think I'll serve. And if they see someone who's struggling, they share their faith. If they see that a need, they address it. Let me tell you, if that describes you, when you stand before God at this judgment, you are going to be rewarded. This is interesting. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures treasures in heaven. So Jesus would say to us as Christians, you are either storing up, laying up treasures on earth, or you're laying up treasures in heaven. Now you've probably heard that your whole life, and it rolled right off your back like water off a duck's back. Didn't bother you one iota. Let me tell you why it should bother you. In heaven, there are going to be different levels. There are going to be varying qualities of life in heaven. In fact, if you've ever read the parable of the mina, that's really what it's all about. And you're familiar with the minor because we've done the minor project. Last year, remember, we gave you $100,000 in cash. We just gave you an envelope. We didn't know what was in the envelope. And we said, go invest it, grow it, and then find a need in the community and meet that need. And you took that $100,000, and the best we can tell with the emails we received, we multiplied that. And you invested about a million dollars of money that you multiplied back into the community to address needs. That was so cool. That came from the parable of the minor. But Jesus told this story. He says, let me tell you a story. One day there was a king who was gonna leave. And so he called his servants in. And he says, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna be gone for a certain period of time. He didn't tell them how long. And he said, but one day I'm gonna come back. And while I'm gone, I'm going to give each of you 10 mina. Now, a mina in those days was about three months salary. So we're talking about three years of wages, a pretty substantial amount of money. I'm going to give you 10 mina. I want you to grow it. I want you to invest it. And when I return, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you did. There is going to be a day of reckoning. Sound familiar? So the king went away. And he came back and he called the servants together and they lined up before him. And the first seven "Servant, said, you gave me 10 mina and I was able to grow it. And now I have 10 additional mina. And the king responded, well done, good and faithful servant. You will rule over 10 cities in my kingdom. The next one stepped forward and said, You gave me ten, I invested it, I made five more. Not as great as the first guy, but I did the best I could. And and, and, and the king is going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You will rule over five cities in my kingdom. And then the third servant came forward and said, I didn't do anything, I just hid it in my sock drawer. He didn't lose it. He didn't waste it on drugs or pornography. He just didn't do anything with what he had been given. And the king said, wicked. You are a wicked servant. In fact, this is what Jesus said, Luke 19. He said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. The king replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, let me tell you the lesson of the parable. This is what Jesus was teaching. As Christians, the more responsible we are on earth with what God gives us, our time, our treasure, our talent, the more responsible we are as to how we invest those things back into God's kingdom, the more responsibility we're going to have in heaven. And that means that for some of you, and again, I'm just just being your friend, When you get to heaven, the tables are going to be turned. Because on earth, you're living large. It's all about you though, right? But then there are people that are saying, well, wait a second. I'm not going to waste all that energy here. I'm going to lay up stuff in heaven, right? This is what Jesus is teaching. When we get to heaven, those that were faithful here are going to be living good. Those of you who ignored the kingdom of God, even though you're Christians, you might find yourself cleaning out their gutters, and cutting her grass. I'm just saying. It's going to be heaven. But we're going to have jobs in heaven. We're going to have responsibilities in heaven. And when you lay up treasures in heaven, you are laying up treasure that's going to impact your eternity in heaven. That's the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of the day, it's this. How faithful have we been with what we've been given as it relates to the kingdom of God? Now, you can say another attempt of a minister to get me to serve and talk me out of my money fine fine but you're going to find out i'm right so something for you to think about what about the great white throne judgment by the way why is it called the great white throne judgment revelation 20 verse 11 then i saw a great white throne there it is very theological (laughs) A great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books books notice notice it's plural books were open. These are the books that record our works on during this life. Another book singular was open, which is the book of life. That's the book that contains the names of people who are Christians, who've accepted the free gift of salvation. Now notice this, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Why? Because their name wasn't recorded in the book, the book of life. So all they have left is what they did on this earth. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done now i said earlier that christians are going to be rewarded on their works are judged on their works and rewarded accordingly let me ask you a question let's say a believer an unbeliever somebody's not a christian right they don't go to church they don't care about god but you know what at the end of the day they're a good moral person they're law abiding they pay their taxes they're charitable but they never give their life to jesus they never become a christian Will that good, moral, yet lost person receive the same punishment in eternity, the same punishment in hell as, say, I don't know, a murderer or a rapist or a child molester? The answer is no. Now understand, both would be going to hell. They're not Christians. They've never accepted God's gift of salvation. But you gotta understand there are degrees of punishment in hell. Remember, God is a just God. Let me show you some, Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable, actually the Greek word is tolerable, for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable. It will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, this is what Jesus was saying. I spent time in those cities. I performed miracles right in front of you in those cities. I taught you in those cities. I shared the gospel with you in those cities. Hey, think about this, Capernaum, That was Jesus' hometown. And he said, I was right there with you, but because of your arrogance, because of your self-righteousness, because of your pride, you rejected me. And then he adds this, if I would have been in Sodom, if I would have performed these same miracles in Sodom, if I would have taught the same things in Sodom, they would have repented. By the way, what sin do we associate with Sodom? You know, you know because we like to make some sins worse than other sins, right? But Jesus said this, I tell you that it will be more bearable, tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. By the way, of all the sins, you know the sins that Jesus considers the most serious? Arrogance, pride, self-righteousness. Just read Proverbs 16, 9. Six things the Lord hates, one he detests, haughty eyes, pride, haughty looks, one who sows dissension among the brothers. Those are the kind of things that God hates. And let me just say this, based on that passage, boys, Americans, we could be in trouble. Because we we can go 100 yards in any direction and find a church where we can hear the gospel. But so many of us, because of our arrogance, our pride, will be rejected. Give you something to talk about in your small group this week, right? Now we saw in Matthew, and I gotta wrap this up, that Christians can store up treasure in heaven. Is it possible that an unbeliever stores up judgment for themselves in hell? Let me show you an interesting passage. Romans chapter two, God is addressing unbelievers, those who reject him. This is what he says in Romans chapter two, verse five. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, look at this. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse six, God will repay each person according to what they have done. So I think what it's saying here is even if you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever, you're storing up for eternity too but you're not storing up treasure. You're storing up wrath. Somebody asked me this. How about, will some believers receive a harsher or stricter judgment? Some will, for example, me. I will receive a stricter judgment than you will. This is what it says in James chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We're gonna be held to a higher standard. And that would go for those of you who are small group leaders. Be very, very careful what you teach in your small group. I hear things. I hear that some of you teach that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Hmm. Tell that to the thief on the cross. I don't know how he got baptized, but Jesus said, I'll see you later. Paradise, right? Some of you teach you have to be baptized as a baby to go to heaven. I'll give you a million dollars if you can find that in the Bible. That's actually something the Catholic church came up with 300 years after the Bible was completed. See, I had somebody in my office they say, my small group leader keeps saying that, that I, Mike's not telling the truth. See, the Bible teaches that when your sins are forgiven, all your sins are forgiven. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. But their small group leaders was no, nope, if you confess your sin and then you go out and cross, you jaywalk, you sin. If you got hit by a car, you'd go to hell. That's not what the Bible teaches, right? Be very, very, very careful about teaching your opinion. Because as a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard a stricter judgment. And as I said, I hear things. Some of you could be in trouble, I'm just saying, at the judgment, right? Now, I know this is heavy stuff. You know what I feel like? I feel like a doctor that's just telling you the facts. I feel like the doctor who walks in and says, you know what? I hate to tell you, you have a disease. And you will die of this disease if you don't accept and apply the cure. Now, here's the good news. We have the cure. So I'm not trying to scare you. (laughs) I'm trying to tell you that according to the Bible, this is the future. But there is a cure. There is a solution. As of right now, that window of opportunity to apply the solution is still available because the gospel is still available. But what you got to understand, one day that window is going to close because one day Jesus is going to return and that's it. We will be judged. And you're going to go to one of two judgments. Every person at the judgment seat of Christ will be a Christian, and after that judgment, they will go to heaven. Every person at the great white throne will be a, a, an unbeliever, someone who rejected the gospel, and their destination will be hell. But here's the good news the window's still open. You still get to choose which judgment you're going to attend. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's appointed for men to die once. After this comes the judgment. That's what the Bible says. It's America. You can believe anything you want. But this is what the Bible says. Let's pray together. Hey, here's the big question. So what are you going to do? You, know? you say, well, Mike, I don't believe in any of this. Boy, you better be right. You better know for sure. Because according to the Bible, you're going to attend one of these two judgments. But by that point, your eternal destination is already sealed. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son to die on your behalf, to pay for your sins so that you would have a way. That's the solution, that's the cure. And it is a step of faith. You can't go to the lab and put it in a test tube and prove it. It's faith. And you can ask all the right questions and do all the studying you can. I'm not against that. You can close the gap. But at the end of the day, eventually, you've got to take a step of faith. Father, right now I pray, help us. Give us clarity. Give us courage. Help us that we do not have to be slaves to fear, as we've heard this weekend. Because we can be called children of God. Whereby we cry, Abba. We get to refer to you as Daddy. That kind of relationship. Father, I believe you're going to do some amazing things in hearts today. We give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.